Welcome to the League of Champs, an arena where we invite everyday athletes, coaches, and entrepreneurs to discuss the methodologies they use to affect change and achieve purpose. League of Champs sits at the intersection of mindfulness and sport with one intention, victory. Join us. What up? Wednesdays, we're here, out here. What's up, good people? Welcome to the league. What's up, Wednesdays? Uh, how are we doing? The world is still ablaze. Not so much a bad thing, not so much a good thing for the reasons, but it is happening. And uh, I, I can't, I can't lie. We've been a little hopeful to see that uh, it is all happening. So, what's up, Wednesdays today? I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, just some reflection. And some thinking I've been doing over the last few days, over the last week, uh, in, in regards to just digging into some of the quote unquote ancient teachings, if if you would, um, and, and just trying to gain some wisdom and some insight um, from those teachings as it relates today, as it relates to league, um, you know, and and how how it relates to just being uh, a part of this process nowadays. I, I, you know, being an everyday athlete, if you would, being a, a, a person, <laughs> a human being in the space. I mean, being, um, you know, a black male in, in America currently, um, you know, what, what that experience has been like. And as I started to think about a lot of that, I started to think about, you know, my own experience uh, growing up in um, Lansing, Michigan, and uh, for the mar- most part, going to an all white Christian school until I was a junior in high school, I transferred my senior year. Um, and you know, white people, if you would, were, were some of my best friends growing up. I mean, they were my best friends. I, I did have a diverse group, uh, shout out to my boy, Freddie Kirkland, who I know might be listening to this, uh, one of my first best friend. We we've been good friends since preschool. It's amazing that we're still in touch. Um, and yeah, I mean, I sort of had like this front row seat, if you would, to the to the white experience, and um, you know the the privilege and the blessing that came along with that within our culture and within our society too. Obviously, there still is the issue of uh, of privilege of of sort of socioeconomic levels, right? Even within black culture, we see it. I mean, it's, it's obviously very prevalent within hip hop culture, um, in terms of, you know, people think that if you, you get money and you get the bins and you get the house and, um, you've got racks and you've got the chain on, you know, every cliche and, and not even that just <laughs> upper middle class Cosby's rest, rest in peace, uh, Heathcliff. Um, you know, this whole concept of just being able to live, quote unquote, the American dream. And I'm very blessed that I had two parents that worked very hard um, to provide this very middle class life for me. And, and, and growing up, even for me, too, as as we dig into this quickly, I got to keep this to like 15, 20 minutes today. Um, you know, growing up in, in that white experience, having some, you know, best friends, but also, you know, still having, obviously being black in this country, still having the racist experiences and, um, you know, not 
necessarily always fitting in. I was, I was, you know, I spoke too proper to hang out with the quote unquote black kids, but obviously, you know, I'm black, so I don't all the way fit in with the white kids. And it's a, it's an interesting space and other, uh, of, of my brother and sisters have had this experience too, as, um, you know, I mean, throughout, throughout the last few decades, but I've definitely connected with and talked to, and, and even Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, puts it so brilliantly in his book between, uh, the world and me where when he got to Howard, you know, he, he saw this vast display of the black experience, right? That there is no singular sort of definition of the black experience. It's, it's vast, it's diverse. It's, um, it's from the highest rings of middle-class or even upper-class to, um, you know, the poorest of the poor and all of those experiences, just being black in this country is part of the black experience. And I had to learn that as I grew up that even though I felt like my experience as, as a young kid and even as a young adult was, was unique in that way that, um, it didn't necessarily denote, uh, my experience. I bring all this up to say, as I begin to reflect and think about, you know, my experience in this, country and, and my reflection over the last couple of weeks as there has been this uprising um, and really, like I said, trying to dig into what that means, not only for myself and, and where I want to get involved, but, you know, what league represents in, in that, um, you know, league was started with this whole context of being this social sports club, you know, the mission of league is to inspire and help people champion, uh, their athletic goals. And in the purpose of the brand is really to build arenas for communities with, with a shared purpose, particularly to the everyday athlete, but, you know, lending that to those who, um, need help and, and need defense and need, uh, don't have all the resources or, um, you know, all the, financial support, the food, the, you know, all the things that sort of make up what would be Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I think is a little antiquated or just the basic foundations of, um, you know, middle class in this country, you know, financial healthcare, education, uh, the right to a fair wage, all of those things. So where can, you know, as I reflect, I'm thinking, where can I help where can the brain help? And it, cause it's not necessarily about me, but I'm just, I'm such a caregiver <laughs> in ways, uh, ask, you know, uh, some of the people close to me, maybe even recently my, my ex-girlfriend and yeah, I just, I care for people so much. My mom, as I mentioned before, is a retired family practice physician. And I think I've just learned from her and, and want to help people. Um, and so, yeah, as I started to dig in, I just, um, began reading The Mindful Athlete uh, by George Mumford. If you're not familiar with who George Mumford is, uh, the, the long short of it is Phil Jackson bought, brought him in uh, to the Chicago Bulls, which it's interesting that it really go into this in, in, uh, in The Last Dance. But um, George was like the meditation teacher, the mindfulness teacher, if you would, for the Bulls. Um, and then I believe for the Lakers too. So he was part of Phil's, Phil's camp and, and, and with Kobe and all that through the Lakers run as well. But in the beginning of his book, he, he says, pain brought me 
to mindfulness, not any desire to reach nirvana or pop out of any chrysalis. It was unlearning certain habits and thought patterns hardwired in my brain and walking through my pain rather than avoiding it that ultimately put me on a joyful journey of self-discovery. And, you know, that really resonated with me. It really stuck with me because the reason why I also arrived at mindfulness and and meditation was because of uh, this very unhealthy, unwise relationship with pain internally and how that then again was being reflected um, in my life. And so as I was doing this reflection, I was reminded of the four noble truths within, within Buddhism. And the first noble truth within Buddhism is suffering uh, is inevitable. Like it's, it's a part of life. We're uh, incapable of sort of satisfying that suffering at times. And, and life is painful. I mean, think about the process of birth. Think about um, falling down for your first time in some of the most simple ways, but also in much more complex ways. I mean, nobody can really understand why the heart breaks, but the heart breaks. What is it like to feel that loss, the grief and loss and sadness of death? Um, and then, you know, looking at the black community at large, um, what it must be like to constantly live in fear. I mean, I was driving today and saw a police officer and there's just this sort of knee jerk innate reaction to when I see them to, to tense up a little bit. It's, it's almost within, uh, ingrained within your nature, I think as a, as a black man in this country and it's, it's interesting that relationship and how, and how that works, you know, even in, um, this blessed sort of middle-class life I've lived, if you would, you don't escape racism. There's no way to buy your way out of this. I mean, from a young kid being in the corner store with friends and being accused of stealing something to, um, walking to, uh, school in Chicago and, and heading towards the train and, you know, the undercover cops running up on me and accusing me of stealing an Xbox. You know, I, I easily could have been um, shot. I could easily could have been choked out or something could have happened to me. You know, th- those cops, particularly after they ran up on me, they went back to my apartment because they demanded my address and knocked on the door and, and, you know, questioned my roommate. Just totally illegal shit <laughs> that, you just don't know at the time because you're young and you're black and you're scared, you know, and I was by myself. There's no camera phone. There was nobody on the block. It was just me and three undercover dicks as we called them in Chicago. Um, so going back to the four noble truths that, you know, life is painful. Um, and the second truth is from that suffering, from that pain comes this craving or desire or attachment. Essentially, from the pain, we create this aversion to it, which is very natural. Think about it. Like you want to get away from the pain, but also, um, you know, it creates this craving. It creates this desire. If, you know, if I get enough money, if I get the right job, if, um, you know, I get out of these situations or put myself in the right situation, then I'll be happy. And, it's not true. We all know this, you know, you get the thing, you do the thing and there is still can be a level of, of sort of emptiness of, of suffering. It's a constant in, in this process of being human. And, but the third noble truth is 
the cessation and ending of that suffering can be attained. Essentially, what the Buddha was trying to teach was that it is possible to end the suffering. Or as I would like to think of this teaching and, and how I translate it is that we can change our relationship to the suffering. Um, and the fourth noble truth is the path towards um, the renunciation of thirst uh, and the cessation of or the ending of um, that suffering or that pain. So quick circle back, the second noble truth from suffering comes craving, desire, or attachment. Um, in Buddhism, that's literally called the thirst, tanya, tanha is I believe how you pronounce it. It's it's literally known as the thirst. So we talk about in popular culture a lot a lot nowadays is, you know, the thirst is real. The thirst is actually a real thing as taught by the Buddha. We are all we are all trying to quench our thirst of of pain, of desire. Um, and so it's very interesting to then say that it is possible to quench that, to end the suffering. And then that the the pathway is part of that process, right? That is the essentially the essence of the fourth fourth noble truth is that pain is the pathway. And if I look at what's happening in the country right now, if I look even personally in my own life, um, and pain, this painful awakening of waking up to not only our own suffering but the suffering of a whole people, right? And what that means. How we can change the relationship, how we we change the relationship to how police operate in our society, right? Is is that abolishment? Is it defunding? Is it reallocation of funds? Is it a can't wait? I mean, up for debate. I think all those things are possible. I think all those things are needed. I think the most important thread through that is is a level of accountability and really, um, you know, understanding why the police have so much money and why do you have so much money and why are the police such a force in our life when you look at uh, the history of police in this country and as it relates back to you know slave patrols and as it relates back to the south and uh you know keep keeping jim crow and and uh you know a lot of these uh, racist policies in place the police we're enforcing this without question um, in ways that were unjust and not equal, of course. So the Four Noble Truths really speak to me in a lot of ways because of, <clears throat> I'm at 15 minutes already. This is going to be a little longer today because of, uh, you know, what that process looks like in our own life. And, and you can sort of see that playing out. And, uh, Suzuki Roshi in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I'll put both of these books in the notes, says you should rather be grateful for the weeds you have in your mind because eventually they will enrich your practice. And I thought that was profound, too, in a lot of ways. It sort of goes back to pain as the pathway um, because, you know, these weeds, this this we're, we're almost we need to go through this painful process of de-weeding racism within this country. And it's a long process and it doesn't stop here. Uh, you know, my boy, Xavier Paul, justice informed shout out to, to him would, would explicitly go into detail about the root of racism in this country and looking at every single factor of government finance, um, capitalism. I mean, it, it, we are cloaked within the systemic racism within this country. And so 
how, where and how do we begin to restructure these elements and this is the de-weeding, right? And we all we often have to look at at our own lives uh, first, um, because in order to see how we want to engage in the world, how do we engage with ourselves? But as I started to think about all this stuff and these great quotes from, you know, these great teachers and this very esoteric, very large piece of thinking is, you know, what a privilege it is to even have these thoughts. And and can you imagine if, you know, young black uh, kids across the board had the ability to have the space to think like this, like the things that would be created, the businesses that would be created, um, the quality that we would see in our healthcare system. My mom, as I mentioned, retired family practice physician in Lansing, Michigan, the capital of, of Michigan was the only, and obviously she's a woman as well, but was the only black family practice physician for 25 years in Lansing, the only black family practice physician. So that means if you are black and you want to see someone who looks like you, who might think like you, who knows sort of what you're going through as a, not only a human being, but also, uh, you know, physically, emotionally, that my mom was literally the only black healthcare physician. Like that's crazy to me to think that, you know, we can't even go see someone who looks like us to, um, get healthy to be healthy and that's a, even if you have health care in the first place so in thinking about these widely esoteric big macro thoughts um, I want to continue to ask myself the question ask ourselves the question you know what it means to be equal to have the chance uh, or privilege to participate in the freedoms of this country um, you know there was a quote on Instagram from this like beautiful sort of stream of conscious, um, from, from the sister down or excuse me in Minneapolis, I believe is where she was at. And she says, you you know, she said, you're lucky black folks are just looking for equality and not revenge. And I'll put this in the show notes as well. But her point being that like, that's all black people are fighting for is equal rights, not to, uh, be on top of anyone else we just want the same rights as everybody else we want the same level of education we don't want to live where there's not opportunity to get healthy food we want the same elements of health care it when you start to think about it in that context uh you know it becomes a a very virtuous and fair fight to say we just want to be equal and that fight has been going on for you know the better part of of 450 years and you know I've heard some of what my white brothers and sisters say over the last week or so like you know black people have the same opportunity in this country as everybody else and it's just not true like I must reiterate that that it's just not true you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't have boots you can't go get a job if you don't have the right education you can't get the right education if the funding in your school system does not equal the school system across town so when you really start to dig into the numbers into the facts into the budget allocation you start to see a lot of this and the final thing i want to talk about is france de walls did a ted talk on fairness 
he really talks about the pillars of morality, you know, reciprocity uh, in terms of fairness, empathy and compassion, like why we need this sort of empathy and compassion um, for this sort of unequal society that we live in. We, we, we have this innate sense of comparison and judgment within us. And, um, you know, even when we talk about equal pay, it's like, I didn't pull the exact, uh, uh, statistic, but it's like, you know, equal pay for black people in this country does not equal white people, especially when you don't dive into the numbers for, for black women in this country. And, this concept of, of, of fairness and equality is deeply ingrained in, in us. And when it doesn't happen, it does set off this rage. It can set off a depression. It can set off a sadness. It can set off an anger. And that's what you're seeing right now. That's why people are walking, you know, up to a Gucci store and breaking a window because they think this might be my only chance to, you know, get this shirt or these shoes that are flaunted in front of me every single day, everywhere to, to say that I am valuable. So, um, Francis Wald did, uh, this test with two monkeys where, um, the monkeys hand you a rock. And when they hand you a rock, that's the ask. When they hand you the rock, um, you get, you're supposed to get a cucumber, but they put two monkeys side by side and, one monkey handed the rock and he got a cucumber. The other monkey handed um, the rock and, and he got a grape. And when the monkey who got the cucumber hands the rock again and he gets another cucumber and then he sees his counterpart get the grape, which supposedly is like their favorite food or whatever, he loses his shit. Like he literally throws the cucumber back at um, the lab person doing this experiment. And it's, it's fascinating because you see firsthand how it is so deeply ingrained in our psychology to do this comparison and judgment. And when you look at the pain and the suffering that black people go through in this country, it's, it's, it's that simple. It's that simple to say that we don't have equal rights, that pay is not the same, that police treat us differently. Um, it's across the board and it's multifaceted. So I'm running a bit long on time today and, but I will put all of this stuff in the show notes. I think it's important to then ask, you know, okay, if we're asking ourselves these questions, um, this is what's happening in our communities. I for sure don't have all the answers, but this is what this podcast and this brand and, and this, um, this work for me is all about is, is, is engaging with people and bringing people together to discuss this and, and talking to the specialists and the professionals that do this, um, you know, for a living for a lifetime to help us sort of gain understanding where we fit and how we can, can be of purpose to, uh, this movement, but I did find an amazing organization called the black emotional mental health collective. They're a collective of advocates, yoga teachers, artists, therapists, lawyers, religious leaders, teachers, psychologists, and activists committed to the emotional mental health and healing of black communities. I will put them in the show notes as well. They envision a world where there are no barriers to black healing. Um, they are a 501c3 organization. Their mission is to remove the barriers that black people experience getting access, staying connected with emotional health care and healing. We do this through education, training, advocacy, advocacy and creative 
arts. Um, to me, being such a creative, um, coming from a family that prioritized healthcare, this is very fascinating to me. And I think um, such an amazing organization that's doing this work because, yeah, we are talking about a lot of trauma growing up in this way. And what are the right, what is the pathway towards healing? What is the wise relationship? That is what I keep coming back to in terms of mindfulness, but getting it away from um, these big esoteric ideas and putting it into actual action. Jack Cornfield, one of my favorite meditation teachers, put on his Instagram this week, you know, neutra- neutrality is not a, a, a concept of Buddhism. It's, it's not. Um, compassion doesn't mean that you're just like, oh, like, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I'm going to go pray for you or meditate uh, for you. It's uh, faith in, in action is is true faith. Uh, compassion in action is true faith. Resistance, civil disobedience is is a means of uh, empathy. It is, a, it is a means of action, taking action for those uh, who can't and, and, and voicing your opinion and creating that boundary to say this is not right. Um, so that's all I have for today. I ran a little bit long. These are only supposed to be f- 15 minutes for what's up Wednesdays, but there's a lot to say. There's a lot going on in the world. So I hope some of this is useful. Again, check out the show notes. If any of it's valuable, send to somebody, rate this podcast, share. Uh, We're League of Champs on Instagram. I am Jamar Eden on Instagram. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're having a good Wednesday. Stay safe out there. Get your water, prioritize, prioritize, rest, get your movement in. Um, and yes, let's keep doing this important work that must be done, uh, not only right now, but for, um, years to come. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.